Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, anxiety, emotion regulation, how to help our kids be successful and resilient. And today I'm super excited. I have another guest on the show. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about her. So it's Jane Wessler. She's an author, licensed clinical social worker, and attorney. For decades, she's helped students with disabilities obtain the kind of educational programming that helps them achieve success. As a psychotherapist, she's worked with teens and children in various settings, including schools and mental health settings. And as an author, Ms. Wessler now pours her experience into her fiction to entertain and to teach lessons. Very excited to have her here today. Welcome and uh, hope you enjoy. Well, hi, Jane. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my absolute pleasure, Caroline. It's great having you. Uh, so why don't we start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'd love to. Uh, I have had quite a career that has spanned a few decades. Uh, I started off as a journalist because that's really my best innate talent. And it's just something that is inside of me that longs to to be heard. So it's something that I, I've always done. I've always been a writer of, of sorts. Uh, so I, I did that as I was going through college. And uh, while I was in college, I fell into the path of my uh, my counselor there who who approached me and said, hey, I'm your counselor. Um, would you like to come for a counseling? So I said, sure. She was so good and she had such an impact on my life that that shaped my career choice. And I became a psychotherapist and I worked as a psychotherapist for years. I worked as part of a uh, outpatient mental health center. I worked on a locked psychiatric unit called the CCIS or Children's Crisis Intervention Services. Mm -hmm. And I worked as part of a child study team where we evaluated uh, children for uh, handicapping conditions, disabilities, and uh, if, if they're found eligible, we, we wrote uh, IEPs, individualized educational programs for them. During that period of my life, I realized that I, I, there was some shenanigans going on uh, behind the closed doors of uh, the child study team and, and the school district, and I felt that I could help students more if I became an attorney, and so that's what I did. I jumped ship, went to law school, and became an attorney and worked for decades uh, serving exclusively students with disabilities um, and getting them appropriate educational services. Uh, and then in 2019, I made a significant career change where I backed off from face-to-face -face work with the students um, and on their behalf, uh, because mostly I was dealing with lawyers, parents, and, and judges, and school district staff. And I went into uh, authoring uh, and writing the books that I had always longed to write. And here I am. That's what I'm doing today. Still working a bit um, with the law, with my law firm and and doing some coaching. Okay. Wow. Yeah. What a shift. I've thought about going back to school and either doing law or medicine, but I know my husband will divorce me because, you know, you know, you I've done school long enough. Um, well, let's talk about your books. Maybe we can jump in from there now that you've kind of shifted to writing books. Well, oh, I'd love to do that. I wrote a book out born of my uh, joint professions, the law and psychotherapy, because I knew there are a lot of 
parents out there who's who who are suffering, whose kids were suffering, who maybe didn't trust lawyers or couldn't afford a lawyer, or for whatever reason thought they could uh, handle things first. And so, my first book was handbook for parents of children with special needs, a therapeutic and legal approach. I wrote that book in two weeks and, but then I I had to get it published, which is a whole different realm, learned how to do that through this class, which was really cool. And then I had a a couple other books. Uh, One was Hurts So Good, An Orgasm of Tears. Um, Crazy (laughs) title, I know, but uh, I happen to be a person who has a lot of empathy and compassion for people and, and I'm soft hearted and I cry easily and I've always been made fun of. And I got really tired of that. And I had read a lot about uh, tears and and their positive effect on health. And I also had the feeling that there was something biological in my body happening at the time um, that was doing something healthy. So I researched it, found an immense amount of information uh, that was really great. And so I wrote that book and got that out of the way. I wrote a few other nonfiction books that I needed to, to kind of clear my plate, clear my head. And then I was able to turn back to that book, Locomotive Breath. I I did a whole rewrite of it because so much time had passed and I learned about creating suspense and, and tension in a novel. And so I rewrote it and I applied to uh, the the people who hando, handle Jethro Tull's licensing to find out if they would allow me to use the lyrics that I wanted on the flyleaf. And I explained what the book was about, that it was a story of a young man who, you know, it's kind of a conglomeration of uh, aspects of students with whom I've worked over decades. It was about a young man who was in a desperate situation. His self-esteem was in the toilet and he was living in an area, just where I'm from, uh, coastal U.S. in New Jersey, where there had been a suicide epidemic. And and in that particular town, the kids were jumping in front of trains and killing themselves. Dreadful. And that had been plaguing me for quite some time as well. And so I uh, explained what the book was about sought the permission. They came back to me and said, the artist denies you permission to use the lyrics. And furthermore, you're not permitted to use the title either. Well, copyright law says you cannot copyright a title. So that wouldn't prevent me, but you can trademark a title. And I looked and sure enough, um, the artist had trademarked the title. So I couldn't use it. So I ended up, uh, renaming it. And and I'm happy that I did. Uh, So I I finally wrote the book, Railroaded, uh, about this student who ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's a kid with ADHD, so he's kind of all over the place. And uh, we know our kids with ADHD. One of my uh, colleagues told me once, uh, a, a psychologist who used to do some evaluations for the students whom we serviced, Kids with ADD and ADHD have a glass jaw. It's it you know if they if they get punched 
it's easily broken. Obviously, that's a metaphor for yeah. their spirit, their soul. You know, they get hurt very easily. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's hard to watch, isn't it? You know, in your practice as a parent. Yeah. And I talk a lot about the shame epidemic that's occurring amongst students with ADHD, just because, you know, in, by the time they're 12, people have heard me say this lots for my listeners, but by the time they're 12, they've heard over 20,000 more pieces of negative feedback than other kiddos, even just within a 24 hour period, they, they hear 40 to 50 pieces of negative feedback, just parents and teachers and other classmates and friends, just someone is correcting them all the time. And then you add to that their sensitivity to corrective feedback in the first place. It's a lot. And, and also uh, couple that with the fact that they're trying to manage things that they really cannot manage. And we are all expecting them to manage and they can't. And and people on the outside who don't have a student, I love the kiddo term. I love that term. <laughs> people who don't have a kiddo with ADD or ADHD don't get it. And they look uh, with uh, judgment uh, at the scenes that they see in the grocery store or at the Home Depot or wherever they happen to be. Um, and and they look with a critical eye. And that kid is uh, absorbing that shame, which, boy, shame epidemic. I, I hadn't actually heard that term before. But so these kids are at risk, as are other students uh, and adults. And I wanted to talk about that in the book, but I also wanted to show that there's a way out that in fact, suicide and yeah, let's name it. It's scary, but it's real. And lots of us have thought about it. Maybe even only just to take away our pain momentarily to say, oh, there's a way out. Yeah, there's a way out. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And, you know, please audience, parents, kiddos, uh, teens, don't forget that there is a way out. And so Will uh, is is um, uh, looking for a way out and he's considering suicide. And um, what what we know about suicide is that it's a, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, I worked on that CCIS where kids had attempted suicide or homicide or both. Yes, both sometimes. And mm-hmm. that was a long time ago when I worked there. The average length of stay was 21 days. Wow. Now, and I can't even, I, I think it's probably a day and a half now. The last time I was up there was 1994 or 96 or something. I I, I was actually at the uh, CCIS at the large urban hospital at which I had worked. And I also worked in the school district there uh, later. And we had a, a young man. I worked at the alternative high school. It, it was uh, technically a, a program for kids with emotional disturbance, which is one of the 13 uh, categories in the United States that we use here. Uh, in in Canada, you have the Education Act and uh, the IPRC that evaluates uh, students and rights plans. IEPs, uh, you have IEPs, we have IEPs. Yeah. Um, so, so this kid had uh, been classified as emotionally disturbed, and uh, he he was 
uh, living in a community where there was a, a large minority presence. He was a white kid, and uh, but but he got along with everybody, and he was he was a tough kid, but, but he had a gentle soul. But he happened to be uh, in in a place one evening where he witnessed a drug murder of wow. one of his friends. And after that, Caroline, he went downhill so fast. It, he became a different kid. And um, I was working with his counselor and we ended up saying, we got to take this kid to the CCIS. And uh, I went with her because I knew everybody there and tried to get him admitted. They would not take him. It was dreadful. And, and at the time, the average length of stay was three days you can't do anything. Oh, wow. no. Can't do anything. Can't make no. make change. I mean, it was hard enough uh, for the twenty one day stay to meet with the kids in, individually and in group and with their parents, because right, the the mm -hmm. the, the kiddo is not always the problem. Yeah, uh, it, it's that system that they're living in, and uh, that needs to have some work done. And then it, while they're in crisis, you can uh, make some change. Uh, because things have cracked wide open, but then you have to set them up for for long term care, mental health care, and whatever else they need. Yeah. Um, and so I I wanted to tell people in an entertaining way that there is a solution. And uh, because I'm a lawyer, uh, I also wrote a, a lawyer in uh, into the mix. And so this kid, Will, is worried about his dad thinks that his dad would be better off if he were out of the picture, if he offed himself and his father would no longer have to pay the legal bills. His father wouldn't have to worry about him. But wow, if you know any survivors of suicide, you know that that is not true. That uh, I, I had two students uh, suicide successfully. I, I, I don't like saying that because doesn't seem like a success does it no it's it's an no. absolute tragedy and the two students were both male they were both really bright kids and but wanted to be perfect and weren't perfect but no one is perfect and that is such a concern to me that our our teens uh, compare themselves to us and so parents can just remember that you know we try to be brave we try to be strong we try to show our kids how to do it and that's really important but it's important for them to see that we struggle that we're vulnerable that we are real and so when they're measuring themselves against us it doesn't have to be some unattainable goal for them uh, they don't we don't want them to feel that they can't measure up because they can and and if they were to die by their own hand uh we would never ever be the same yeah and i think it's hard because there is yeah that stoic um parent but even just i mean social media we see far more depression and suicide now than any other generation we've all been through parent stress and stressors of school and society and war and pandemics but but this generation more than any other also have social media 
And, and so there's that constant comparison all the time, how my parents are handling things, expectations from teachers, certainly, but look at everybody's perfect life online and look at all my friends hanging out without me. Right. And it's all perfect, perfect, perfect. And then we post the perfect picture, but we assume it's just fake for us. It's real for everybody else. And nobody would like the real me. They would only, they're only liking these perfect pictures, right? And, but they're only posting the per- perfect pictures. Um, and even just the amount of widespread media. I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, The Psychology of Influence, I think is what it's called. And in there, he talks about, well, we just know uh, articles, you know, on Reddit, anything that the more severe the self-harm is, the more uh, tragic the suicide is, those are the most popular posts Mm -hmm. and it's contagious. And in the book, Psychology of Influence, he talks about, it's quite fascinating, when there is a widely publicized suicide, um, so obviously somebody famous, but it doesn't even have to be someone famous, even just within local regions. If it's talked about and publicized a lot, we see increased uh, air uh, airplane accidents, car accidents. It's quite interesting because wow. one to your earlier point, it's a way out. And the more similar the person is to themselves, they say, ah, look, this person found a way. They found mm-hmm. a solution. Not mm-hmm. thinking about the temporary the temporary problem. They found a solution. And so they're more likely to, whether it's outright suicide or, I mean, the accidents, right? They will make a mistake somehow, somewhere. And if there's homicide murders or um, not homicide murders, homicide, <laughs> suicide. So murder, suicide, oh, yes. then the fatalities increase. So from a single car fatality now to multiple fatalities, a bigger accident. It's quite interesting how our brain works, but we are so vulnerable. And the teenage brain especially is already mm-hmm. just developmentally so vulnerable. So it's definitely an important topic. So that is fascinating. And you're making me think of so many different things. For instance, that connection uh, and how you see the uh, a percentage uh, of the incidence of uh, car accidents and airplane accidents rise uh, upon the publication of, um, you know, someone's suicide. And it seems to me uh, I don't know because I haven't researched it, but that there would be a continuum uh, of causation um, in that uh, in those car accidents and airplane accidents. Perhaps some were deliberate, right? Perhaps some were were just a mistake. Um, but so we know that anxiety, I believe it's still true, uh, is the most prevalent of mental health issues, disorders. Uh, And um, I went to a a continuing ed workshop once, and this was so fascinating. This gentleman, the the psychologist who gave the the workshop, talked about anxiety in the same way that you just talked about the, the suicide, that the mentality you know, how is it controlling us? And are we letting it control us? How is this happening? And it, I don't know that it can be really explained, but this psychologist demonstrated 
through unassailable evidence, which is something I always want as an attorney, got to see the evidence, and he did it, that when you are anxious or depressed, the people in your neighborhood, in your community, even if you don't know them, are more likely to be anxious and depressed. And conversely, if you live in an area where people uh, where there's a high rate of depression or anxiety or both, you yourself are more likely to be afflicted by this. And he was not able, this very learned person who had all this information, was not able to explain how exactly that happened. Mm. And it, it makes me wonder, uh, have you ever seen a flock of birds fly up and turn in midair in perfect synchronization and you wonder how are they communicating are they you know are they chattering to each other is it a pheromone we we know that we know that women's bodies communicate with one another for instance if uh you work in a building with a lot of other uh women of childbearing years they all menstruate the same week um Yeah. My daughters didn't believe me. And now my teenage daughter's like, mom, this is weird. This is just too weird. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's true. And, but our, our nervous systems do talk with one another. And so we do see even just, I mean, it's fascinating. I didn't hear about, I didn't know about the neighborhoods. That's quite fascinating. But I know even within a room, you know, being with, with clients, we have to make sure we are grounded and, to be able to create that safety, right. To bring them out of fight flight and create that space because it's really easy. We can trigger each other all the time. Uh, And so with kiddos, that's important. And that's something I talk about too, with parents and teachers, just, we have to be really strong co-regulators, no matter what's going on for our kiddos, just, they're going to have these big emotions that we have to sort of contain that space, but that's fascinating with the neighborhoods. That's great that you're teaching people to do that. Uh, I always loved the fascination of the human body and the human mind and how we're all interconnected and interdependent. And actually, that is part of the whole theme of, of Railroaded is that when we make ourselves vulnerable to other people, we're actually acting out of strength. It takes courage to say, I need help. There's a cute little meme that goes around on uh, Facebook and other social media. Not that you should be on it that much, but it's Pooh and Piglet walking and you, you're you're looking at the back of them. And, you know, little Piglet says to Pooh, uh, what's the bravest thing you've ever done? And Pooh says, ask for help Mm -hmm. bravest thing i've ever done and uh if only we can ask for help if only we're brave enough and i can talk to myself uh to do that to 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 say that same thing because we don't like to ask for help um i know in the united states and maybe it's the same in northern america we take pride in our rugged individualism and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but not everybody has boots, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you can't always grab a hold of that. And it, it, it's been looked at as shameful to ask for help. You should be able to do it yourself, do it yourself, DIY. But people, if you've noticed, and if anybody who's listening has noticed that 
think about a time where someone came to you and asked your for your help. Um, I remember my stepdaughter, uh, who I helped to raise for a period of years, um, at, at a dinner one night, um, she was betrothed, engaged to be married, and just announced to the whole table that I was going to be helping her plan her wedding. Well, I had no idea um, that I was going to be doing that, but I dove in. I was so flattered and honored to be that she would just assume that I was going to help her and that uh, I would say yes when she asked me. And it made me feel so good. And it was such a great experience to do that with her. Um, we, we need to realize that when we ask others for help, it makes them feel good. It elevates them. It gives them more of a sense of purpose and agency in the world. And it creates an inter interdependence and a bond. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to, to remember. And um, in the story, that's one of the themes of the book is, is that interdependence of um, friends, family, loved ones, community, um, where, wherever you belong. And, and for our kiddos who are uh, experiencing overwhelming emotions um, and what's not overwhelming if not thoughts of suicide, there are, are, are ways that they try to still the pain, um, but it's important for them to feel that they belong somewhere that, so there are a lot of risk factors uh, mm -hmm. that we, we need to kind of keep an eye out for, because as you pointed out yourself, um, some of these people who, who die at their own hand, we you would never have known uh, that they were suffering like that. So it's mm -hmm. really, really important to, to speak up and, and ask for help. Always easier said than done. And we know that we know that, I mean, actually in the book, he talks about how asking for help brings us closer together, even a boss, right? Asking a boss for their advice and input on something that they've assigned us actually creates more unity, more weeness, more collaboration, uh, and it makes us more human. If we're perfect all the time, and this is something I'm working with my teens all the time because they want this perfect image, right? From their hair to how they speak to how they position their body. And it's like, it makes you unapproachable. It makes you intimidating. It's actually doing the exact opposite effect of what you want it to do, which is have people like you. And it's through our mistakes and our vulnerabilities that actually connect us and bring us together and make us more human. And I think though, there's just that social anxiety because we do have that core need to belong. And so that anxiety to belong and to have people and to be loved and be, to be part of a tribe is so much stronger that it blinds them mm -hmm. to all of the things that they actually need to be doing. So I think that that's really important. Um, you mentioned some of the risk factors, some of the signs, because I think even just recently, I've heard of stories where I'm shocked. I mean, I don't know them personally. It's, it's more, you know, famous people and it's just jaw dropping, you know, nobody knew family didn't know, certainly in the public, just seeing them, you know, a week before in the public, it was just wow, you seem so happy. So what would mm -hmm. some of those signs, warning signs be? Uh, with your your 
kids, your your students, your young people, and even kids as young as five years old uh, can attempt suicide. My first day on the CCIS, I was walking down the hall, and this teeny tiny little tyke was walking by me. And I, I was very new and very young, and I wasn't sure whether I should even speak to him. And, and he's walking down the hall, and he looked up at me, and he said, hi. And I found out that he had tried to hang himself in the garage. Now, wow. a kid that age has no idea, no, no ability for abstract thought at that point. So doesn't understand the consequences, but still saw this somewhere and, and was looking to, to emulate somebody um, and get out of his, his uh, pain. And if we do know those signs and symptoms, it, it helps open up the conversation. So uh, if you have a kid who, and I saw this a lot with, with my teens, uh, working with my teens all the time, uh, kids who sleep a, a lot or who aren't sleeping much because they got a constant buzz mm-hmm. in their head. So if the sleep is off, if it's disturbed too much or too little, that's a sign. If they've gained a lot of weight or lost a lot of weight, um, it's a sign of what we know is called anhedonia. It's a lack of pleasure and what used to bring pleasure to kiddos. Uh, if they're withdrawing from their social set or from their typical activities that they like to do, if they were into sports or they went to clubs at after school or they hung out with a group of friends and they suddenly start not participating anymore. That's withdrawal and isolation. And that is a real scary uh, sign where they've changed their group of friends, hanging out with a, a rougher crowd, kids who are in trouble, who are already in trouble and, you know, going in the wrong direction. Uh, that's a sign if they're starting to use substances, alcohol, drugs. Um, those are some of the signs. If they're uh, expressing hopelessness, that's a really scary sign because if you don't have hope, you don't have much uh, to hang around for. Um, and kids can be impulsive uh, and can try things that they don't think through, especially the kiddos who we know already have a glass jaw, the kids with ADD mm-hmm. and ADHD. So we want to try to be as vigilant as we can. And for parents or uh, teachers, coaches, mental health professionals. Uh, if we can be alert, um, maybe we can help. And I think for parents, there's a lot that we can do, right? As parents, there's so much we can do. Um, one thing that's ridiculously simple that you probably already know what I'm going to say is eat dinner regularly with your family. Mm-hmm. If if people just look at that and you look that up, it is ridiculously effective because it's it's a, a set point and kids, no matter where they're at, what they're going through, they know that there is a safe place and a safe time that they're going to come to. They belong here at this dinner table and their family cares enough about them to create that time. And, and at that table, people can talk about what their day was like. Now, teenagers are famous for being tight-lipped and giving one-word answers and guess what they're listening Mm -hmm. sometimes they can be coaxed to talk although the coaxing probably would shove them back a little further but if the conversation 
keeps going, they can warm up and join in. And here's where the parent can talk about the parent's day and the struggles that they're having. This is a time to be real and authentic. This is how we role model so that our kiddos who are facing extraordinary challenges with social media, as you pointed out, this is a time where they can be themselves and, and have a trusted confidant. And uh, that's another another thing that kids need is a trusted confidant. So all these things are going on at the dinner hour. Mm -hmm. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard for parents. Uh, my kids are grown up and I have uh, baby grandchildren now. And so uh, I miss those days, but I, I know how hard they are. And you're trying to work and you're trying to monitor your kids' uh, social media and trying to put things together um, so that they're active and, and doing great things and learning great things. So, but if you could do one thing, I would say do that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a whole bunch of, of other things to do. Yeah. And uh, one thing we do, cause it is hard. I mean, even just this weekend, we had dinner last night my, and everyone was like, this is really nice that we're together. We're just go, go, go tournament, tournament. This kid's got that. This kid's got that sleepover. And so I can't remember the last time I remember watching the show, young Sheldon and my kids commenting, they like, look, they have really nice dinners every night. Do people actually <laughs> see that? And I'm like, I know this, but it is hard. But one thing we do have every month each child we have a date night on the day they were born so every first my youngest we have a date night with her and every 14th we have a day night with my oldest and we can ask them three questions and they can ask us three questions and they have to answer any other time they can get by with i don't know bleh, nothing all good but these three questions they have to really think about they can say, let me think about it and come back, but, but they have to answer. We usually have like a fun one, you know, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? But it would be what, what's the struggle going on in your life right now? Um, what are you really stressing out about over right now? We usually have one more serious one just about, you know, friends or, or how they're doing. Um, so that's definitely a, a big one. What are some other ideas that anything else you can think of that parents? Oh, think? yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say how fantastic of an idea that is, um, because I bet there are times when your kids are waiting for you to ask the question. They want to be asked the question because kids long for boundaries and they long for our interest and attention. And so what a great thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, what else can we do? You mentioned tournaments, sports, uh, yes. Yes. sports, or help them develop an area of competence. So often with the students that I had who had specific learning disability, disabilities, SLD, uh, math, math uh, disorder, reading disorder, writing uh, disorder, of written expression. These kids, if they were good at sports, you would see that that self-esteem that they had, because they knew they were good at something, would translate into other areas of their lives and would protect them. Because mm -hmm. as you know, the kids with specific learning disability, although they're usually pretty smart, pretty intelligent, they don't think they are because they're not learning the same way everybody else is learning and they're falling behind in class. And when the teacher calls on them, they don't have the answer. And then they're 
anxiety ratchets up and inhibits their performance even more. It's just terrible. But competence, mm-hmm. if, they, if they develop competence at something, it could be anything. And everybody has a talent, right? The word talent is an old word. It, it used to be a coin, uh, coins that we would use to buy things with. Um, and so that's when, that's why we talk about spending your talent. Everybody has at least one talent. And so if you're, you can identify that for your child and help them to grow in that area, um, that's going to make them feel really good about themselves. And maybe it's just that they can make the best banana pancakes in the family on Saturday morning, or um, they'll, they can grind the coffee beans and make coffee, or they do taco Tuesday. Maybe they play a musical instrument and they're really good at that, or they play a sport, uh, whatever that thing is that they're really good at it. Maybe they do hip hop but help them develop that as, as an area of competence, because that will shore up any, any plaguing uh, self-esteem issues that they're having. And especially when they're trying to be perfect on social media. And of course, nobody's perfect and they know they're not perfect. That's Mm -hmm. a great way to do it. Um, Another way is, you know, I liked what you said about uh, having that set time and, and asking questions and every other time they could n- not answer, but, but on those dates, um, they have to answer the three questions. Um, and I, I think that's great. Uh, that reminds me of, uh, a, a famous psychologist, uh, doctor, I think it's Dr. James Dobson, who's a Christian psychologist who said, say yes as often as you can. And then when you say no, you're, you know, is going to be more powerful. So we say yes to let our kids do the things that their heart leads them to, that their mind leads them to. And you're letting your kids say, say, um, you know, I'm not going to answer those questions on any given day, but on these days, I I know that I have to. Um, And so some of the other things that they can do, uh, what was I just thinking about? Um, besides playing a musical instrument or, um, you know, developing an area of competence um, in something, you can make a time to sit down with your child and share some music. And music has a way of penetrating the heart. It kind of bypasses the mind in some way, the logical mind, the thinking mind to get to our emotions. And if you sit down with your, your kid, your, your child, your student, and, and say, Hey, share with me some of your favorite songs. What are you listening to these days? What's your favorite song and play it and listen to it and ask them why, what makes this your favorite song? What emotions do you feel when you're listening to the song? Do you have a song, a different song that makes you feel really good? Do you have a song that you listen to when you feel sad to help bring out the sadness? Do you have a song that makes you angry? And then listen to them and talk about that. Uh, They're going to feel really good that you paid attention and that you wanted to share that time because that says to them, I love you Mm -hmm. and you're more important than all the other things that I have to do right now. They know you're busy. 
but they know when you give them that that time you're telling them i'm putting you up at the top and share your music with them <laughs> they may make they may make fun of it uh, but they'll appreciate it and and they know again it's a way for uh, them to know that you love them and for you to tell them that uh, and you never know they might develop an appreciation for the music you listen to or it can be a revelation too that this is another way of saying to them I'm vulnerable yeah. I I hurt sometimes and and I need music to soothe my soul right. so I think that's another great way of, of, of helping the kids, um, you know, deal with the difficulties that, that they face and dealing with the, the difficult emotions, the overwhelming emotions that they have. Um, there's a, there's a lot of ways to do it. And, and you're also building their emotional literacy and awareness and all of those kinds of things. And especially when we're looking at ADHD who have interoceptive awareness challenges where they're just not picking up what's happening, those signals. I mean, those listening to different music in a safe space can help build some of those skills as well, which mm -hmm. is critical for managing those emotions. Mm -hmm. um, other things that come to my mind, I mean, a mistake of the day where everyone can talk mm -hmm. about that. And I think, you know, modeling that asking for help. I, that's usually when I look at IEPs, IPPs, ISLs, we have so many different names for them up here, but um, that's usually a big one that I almost always have as a goal is to ask for help because so many don't, even if it's just school related, um, it's a big one for almost all, all, of, all of our students. Well, if they, I think that's great that you do that. And and if you get them used to doing that and asking for help on the smaller things, then they're going to build the competence uh, and the habit of asking for help so that when something's bigger, um, they can ask at that point. And that's important that we build up our own and their resources. We need to know what our resources are and who they are um, so that when the time comes, when we need them, we're not going to be able to figure it out at that point. We can't. You just need to know where to go and what to do. Uh, if parents are meditating or doing any mindfulness work, that's really important. Meditation is something I discovered um, I always thought it was a good idea, <laughs> but you know, everybody thinks meditation is a good idea, but who really does it? Because we're kind of like, eh, what, what is that? You know, you just sit, sit there and breathe for 10 minutes. Um, so I had always thought meditation was a good idea, but I didn't do it like so many millions of other people. And my, and I'm, I'm, I try to be very healthy. I exercise a lot. I've always eaten well. I try to think good things and, and uh, do good psychological practices. My A1C had gone into the pre-diabetic range. So your A1C is the measure of blood glucose, blood sugar over time. And the cutoff is 5.6 to 5.7 and mine had gone into the 5.7 range and I at the time had had found a really amazing physician amazing person and uh she said to me um maybe you should start meditating and and tapping and we'll talk about tapping too emotional freedom tapping Woo. 
And so I did, I, I started meditating and three months later, my, and my, the, my blood sugar had only gone to 5.7, but it was still technically in that, in the wrong range. And I, I went home and I looked at, okay, what can I do? There was nothing I could do. I was already doing everything that was the answer, nutrition, exercise. Um, and I started to do the meditating and it, and it reduced my A1C and everybody thinks meditating is hard or they're not doing it right. That is, it, it's very simple. And all you have to do is go into a room and sit quietly. If you can do 10 minutes, do 10 minutes, start with five. Don't give yourself something you can't do and then feel bad. But if you just sit quietly, don't just do something, sit there. Unlike the old adage, don't just sit there, do something. No, don't just do something. Sit there and breathe and close your eyes, sit quietly, watch your breath, observe your breath go down and make sure it goes all the way into your belly because we're agitated a lot. We're breathing in our chests. It's rapid. It's anxiety breathing. <laughs> so we have to learn, and I have to do this regularly. I have to just sit quietly uh, because I'm always a go, go, go person. And uh, in fact, I went to acupuncture uh, one summer. I went for 10 weeks and the wonderful, amazing Chinese acupuncturist who came in uh, to work with me, and he was talking to me about what was going on, and he was putting needles in my body, which isn't as nearly as bad as it sounds. It's actually really cool what happens in your body. But then he said to me, so in his Chinese accent, <laughs> I've been standing here for five minutes, and I haven't seen your belly move at all. Mm -hmm. He said, you're breathing into your chest. He said, you need to start breathing into your belly. And I, I'm a yogi. I've been going to yoga, but it wasn't translating. So we need to breathe into our belly. So you sit quietly, you let your belly expand and you just sit and you're going to think things just don't follow the pull of the thought, recognize the thought, let it go like a leaf on a stream. And you can picture that picture the leaves going down the stream or think, let go as you're breathing. If you do that regularly for 10 minutes a day, deep belly breathing, you are giving yourself a magic pill. It has so many positive physical and mental effects. It's almost unbelievable. And until you start looking at the studies, it really does work. So, you know, do it with your kids or um, do the three, two, one technique. That's another cool thing, um, which you can get into the habit of doing. Uh, you look around the room, just look around the room and pick out three things and in your mind, name them. You know, in your mind, I see a picture, I see a shutter on my window, I see a cork board, but just think it. That's three. Okay. So that's three. So two is put up your two hands and then put your arms around yourself and give yourself a hug for one minute and just, just hold it and be quiet for a second and notice what's happening in the body. Be gentle with yourself. Think positive things like, you know what? I'm really taking care of myself. I'm going to just 
take care of myself and give myself the time and space I need. I'm going to take a minute and breathe deeply. I don't have to rush off banging my shins into the furniture. Um, Nothing is that much of an emergency unless someone is really bleeding and needs to go to the hospital, right? And then when you're done after a minute, deep breath into the belly and you're done. And what you've done is you've, by looking at the three things, you brought yourself into this moment by taking your two hands and wrapping them around yourself. You've given yourself a hug and you've released oxytocin into your body, which is a feel good hormone. And you took that moment to relax for just a moment and to interrupt the cycle of possibly, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, or whatever is going on, the anxiety cycle. And if you do that throughout the day, you can pay attention to what your body's doing. And you don't even have to stop once you you do it once or twice a day, maybe three times before bed, you know, at lunch or whatever. But you can stop during the day when you recognize that you're getting tight or you're, oh, I'm shallow breathing. What's going on? What I'm, I'm rushing to do this thing. What am I thinking? Stop yourself and just pay attention. Unlock your jaw, take a deep breath, roll your shoulders back and get into the habit of doing that. And, and that's another great thing for people to do um, and teach their kids to do. Which is great. And that mindfulness, we know, again, ADHD helps with focus and all of those kinds of things. I still have so many questions. I think there's so many things that we could be talking about, but time goes by so fast. Is there any last minute comments, things that our listeners should absolutely know before we wrap up for today? Yes. You know, I have a whole pile of notes and I know we didn't talk about it all because there's so much really life is complex. And I don't want to even look at those uh, to think about, oh, what did I miss? No. We'll have part two. My, we'll have part two. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I want, what I want parents to know is trust yourself. You know your kids and you know yourself. And so merely that, trust yourself. Wonderful. I think that's a great message because it's so easy to get caught up in, I don't know, I, I need to listen. I need to read and I need to do this. So just again, being in that moment too with your kids. Well, if we need to do a part two, if there's lots, we didn't even get to IEPs and 504 plans, but uh, yeah, it was wonderful having you on today. Thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. It's just fun to talk about these topics. You gave me some things to to look up and 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 learn about, and it's really fun connecting with you. And I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing with so many kids. I'm sure that you are having an impact on so many lives. So thank you so much for having me on this show. Thanks for being here. And if anyone wants to get in touch with Jane, she's passed along great resources and you can see all of her information, how to get in touch with her in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you.